You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. It's hard uh, when you're on the outside looking in at something. Okay, Michael Scott from The Office, he once said this. He says, I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday, right? Like this idea of always being on the outside looking in. It's a lonely place that leaves you feeling left out and insecure when you're kind of an outsider. And that feeling is what a lot of people have felt throughout their life. Maybe you can relate. Maybe it started in school when you weren't part of the popular kids. It maybe continued into young adulthood when your friends went off to college or they started a family and you're still at home trying to kind of figure things out. It it could be in the form of maybe being an outcast at work because you believe in Jesus and don't do the same things that everybody else does. It might even come internally from your extended family when they kind of leave you out of things. It might be even in retirement. You could could feel like the world has all but forgotten you. You feel like this, this outcast and that is hard when you feel that way. But what I love about Jesus is that he has this way of not only seeing outcasts, but actually bringing them towards him. To kind of frame our time today, I want you to think that Jesus doesn't have the out, leave the outcasts out, but brings the left out in. Super important. He's constantly making a point not to keep anyone out from that, that would want his love and his grace. His desire is that no one would feel left out that wants to come to him. And so in this season of Mark, what we're going to be looking at, and we're going to focus on, is the outcasts and those people that are left out, the people that are left behind. And we want to see that where Jesus shines the most in Scripture is when he brings the most unassuming people into the limelight to showcase their faith and their love of God. It's very rare that you ever see Jesus use somebody that's popular or elite or well-to-do as an example. It's almost exclusively the exact opposite of that. But what can we learn from the outcasts? And better yet, what new perspective of Jesus will we find when we draw our attention away from the limelight for a little bit and actually look closer at the shadows? That's what season three of Mark is going to be all about. But before I I dive into today's message, I think it's important to remember a couple of things to set the stage today. The first thing is, is that no matter if you are an outcast and feel invisible to the world, or you are the most popular person that everyone knows, you just need to know that everyone is broken and sinful. Everybody's broken, everybody's sinful. The Apostle Paul mentions this very clearly, Romans chapter 3. He would say it this way, he says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is really important to keep in mind. He says that, he says that all of us, right, that all of us have sinned and fallen short. So no matter how much or little limelight shines on you, we will all be held accountable. We will all be held accountable for the sin in our life. That there is, the, the, the truth is that there's no amount of money or influence or good things or having pity on yourself or having the hard times that you might have gone through that somehow cancel your sin debt when it comes to God. It, we, we all have to account for our sin. But, but thankfully, Paul wasn't done in verse 23 because the very next verse is as equally as powerful and also true. Look in verse 24. It says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
So again, this word all is super important. It's, it's important because all of us, outcast, famous, rich, poor, inside the circle, outside the circle, all of us can be justified, meaning forgiven, because of the grace that is found in Jesus. That should really blow your mind. So no matter how you walked in here or logged in here today, whether your head is held up, up high in confidence or your eyes have not made, lift up, lifted up from the ground yet, I just want you to know this. Okay, listen, Jesus loves you. He's offered, he offers you forgiveness from your sins. He, he does not see you as the world sees you. In fact, he sees you as the creator of the universe, saw you as he made you. And, and equally powerful to know is that before we move on too much further is that if you feel like an outcast today, you need to know Jesus sees you. He literally knows you. He, he loves you. And as we read through the Bible, you'll see that he almost exclusively hung out with outcasts. Yeah, 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 check this out. Part of the reason the religious leaders hated him so much was because he didn't hang out with the right people, or so they thought. Look what it says in Luke 15, 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But, but Jesus never said, like, oh, no, no, that's not true. Let me show you all my popular people I hang out with. No, he actually, like, didn't deny it. Look at what he says in Luke 7. Luke 7, he says, the son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So if you came in here today and are not sure if Jesus is your guy, if, he, if he's the guy for you, or if you maybe lived your whole life being like late to the party on everything, and so you think, well, you know, knowing Jesus, I'm probably just late to the party on that. Listen, I just want you to know that that's the farthest thing from the truth. It's the farthest thing from the truth. I'll, I'll say it again to you. Jesus, here's what Jesus, Jesus cares for you. Jesus sees you. Jesus wants to hang out with you. And he deeply, deeply loves you. And I'll tell you that today because I need to hear that too. In fact, I need to be reminded of that just this last week. I, I always want to make sure that you know that, man, I am human and I struggle sometimes. So I'll just tell you that last week for me was, was really, really hard. Like I'm saying really, really hard. And, and don't worry, my marriage is fine. My kids are fine. My health is fine. I just got some really hard news to hear. But it was that kind of news that was a gut punch to you, makes you question a lot of things in your life, makes you feel like you're on the outside looking in, it makes you super lonely. And I'm guessing that if we raised our hands honestly, there'd be a lot of people that felt that same way. And, and I got really sad, I got unmotivated, I just wanted to really pull away from everything, which is kind of hard to do when you stand on a stage to preach, preach your guts out four times every week, there's not a, place, a lot of places to hide. And so it was in these moments that I really had to lean into God. And I had to remember that I was broken inside and I really needed his, his grace and his love. I had to trust that even though I felt like an outsider, an outcast, that God still loved me. So I needed to preach this message that you're about to hear today to myself first before it ever came to your ears. And, and I'll tell you that, that over the last week, God has been really good he has uh, he's shown me some things that I believe to be true about myself that were absolute lies. He convicted me in some areas that I need to trust him some more in. He challenged me to stop feeling sorry for myself and get up and buck up buttercup in a few places. And he loved me like a dad should. He loved me well. And, and it's been so good to know that God still sees me even in the middle of feeling like I'm on the outside. But in order to get there, God had to do some work in here. 
And I want you to know I'm doing a lot better. I'm doing a lot better. But, but I hope and pray that you feel God speak to you today. And I want to encourage you that no matter how you came through this door, no matter how you logged on today, I want you to know I believe God's got something for you today that he wants to hear from you, right here from him from, to you. So I, I lay that all, all that groundwork so that we can kind of get moving here today. So, so let me make sure we're all in the same spot. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be at. So if you want to turn your Bibles or your Crossroads Grace apps to Mark chapter 9. Christina, go ahead and put that link in for our online campus. Mark 9 is where we're going to be at. And let me give you a little context to where we're going to be. Uh, where we pick up today, Jesus had just finished a crucial moment in his ministry. That in spite of what all the religious leaders said and had told the world, Jesus actually said, hey, here's what it really looks like to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, what it really looks like to follow God. And so in short, Jesus said this in, in actually in, um, in, um, in Mark chapter 8, right before where we'll be at today. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 33, says, whoever wants, or 35, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So it, this is the devotion that Jesus says. It's actually going to level the playing field because he just said, he said, hey, whoever, whoever wants to follow me, like this is what you should expect, like whoever wants to. So a true disciple in Jesus is willing to follow Jesus wherever that might take them, which for three of his disciples is a pretty cool deal because in this next moment, you're going to see what following Jesus led them to be able to experience. So go to chapter 9, start in verse 2. We'll get to start and see that what happened today. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So if you just look at some of the details, about a week has transpired between since Jesus talking to the crowd and his disciples about what a true disciple of Jesus would be willing to do. And now Jesus takes three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, up onto this high mountain. Now, I will say that there is debate within scholarship as far as what mountain this really is that they were on. Some say it was Mount Tabor, which is in the Jezreel Valley around the Jerusalem area. Others say Mount Hermon, which is the modern-day Lebanon and Syrian border. Uh, traditionally, there, there, it was kind of established back in the 3rd century by a scholar by the name of Origen that Mount Tabor was the location. It later was confirmed by a, a Latin priest by the name of Jerome and then a theologian by the name of Cyril in Jerusalem back in the 4th century AD. They all kind of said it was Mount Tabor. But I do think it's important to note that we don't know exactly which mountain it is because the scripture isn't necessarily crystal clear about it. But I wanted to take you on a little bit of a journey with us. So if we take a look, we're going to start in Crossroads here in a second. Let me take you all the way over to Mount Tabor over in, in uh, Jerusalem. Um, and when I say, when I was in Israel, I got a chance to see Mount Tabor when I was in Jericho. It's one of the coolest places because when you get over to, uh, to Mount Tabor, you actually get to see there's a church there called the Church of the Transfiguration. Honestly, it's a super cool place because of this amazing moment we'll talk about. It's one of the coolest sights that I saw because of what happened on that mountain. Because while Jesus and his three friends, his three disciples, were standing on top of this mountain, Jesus reveals his glory to them. He unveils who he really is. And the Bible uses the word. It says that he transfigured in front of them. Now, the Greek word that was used there is the word metamorpho. Now, what metamorpho means is to change into another form. 
This might look a little familiar. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from. Think about what happens when a butterfly comes out of a cocoon and you understand metamorpho. In this moment, Jesus changed into his natural form. And it was said he was like a blinding light that had appeared in front of them. And the light blasted these men. But when the light finally lifted, they could finally see there wasn't just one person there. It said that there were three. There was Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So let me help you explain to you why this is such a big deal, especially if you're like new here and you're kind of wondering like what kind of weird Harry Potter deal is going on here? You know, like is the, the long bearded guy going to come out? We're going to play Quidditch a little bit later. Like what's the deal? Like let me explain. Let me explain. So both Moses and Elijah, they are important men from the Old Testament, but they are already dead. So, so Moses was the one that led the people out of Egypt into the promised land, and God established the law of God through Moses. Elijah was one of the prophets of God, and he communicated God's message to the people. So in Moses, you see the law, and Elijah, you see the prophets. Both of them are like really, really, really big deal to the, really big deals to the Jewish people. So, so like Peter, James, and John, seeing those guys up on the mountain would be like if you came home from lunch and you, you went into your living room and, and like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and Pistol Peach Maravich were just hanging out playing cribbage. You would be like, whoa, this is crazy if you're a basketball fan. This is an epic moment. Not to mention the fact that Jesus is now glowing. And so now they find they're like, hey, I think our friend is the son of God. And it's like, yeah, way to go, guys. You finally got it, you know? So, so, so check out what Peter says as, as, as this whole scene plays out. Look what he says. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, I love Peter. Like, Peter's my boy. Like, when we get to heaven, he and I are going to be playing catch. Y'all do what you want to do. We're going to be playing catch. I got some stuff I want to talk to Pete about. Okay? Because Peter says, Jesus, this is awesome, man. This is, this is a really good thing that, that I'm here. I mean, that we're here. Right? You know, like, and, and he's like this close to autographs. Can't you feel it? He was like, gosh, I, I know Sharpies haven't been invented yet, but what could we do? What could you sign? You know? But, but instead, here's what he do. He, he offers another idea. Instead of auto, autographs, he offers another idea. He turns kind of chip gains and does a little fixer-upper little episode just real quick. He's like, hey, what if we make you all some houses? You know, Jesus gets a house, Moses gets a house, Elijah, everybody get a house, right? And, and why don't we just stay up here? Because I'll tell you, I got some questions. We're going to be here a while, guys. So here's the deal. Peter thought he arrived at the pinnacle of his relationship with Jesus in that moment. You really couldn't blame him. I mean, Jesus shows him his glory, like all this. It's crazy. But then look cl closely at what happens next. Verse 7. Verse 7, it said, the cloud, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So all of a sudden, this cloud covers up Moses, Elijah, Jesus. The guys were probably in there. A voice speaks from the cloud. And what does it say? It says, hey, this is my son, whom I love. You should really listen to him. Now, this moment might sound really familiar, especially if you've been following us in our Mark series. Or maybe you're familiar with your Bible. and You're like, I think I've heard that someplace else. You would be right. 
Because over in Mark chapter 1, about when Jesus was being baptized by his cousin John, we read that this happened. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So now twice we see that God tells whoever was listening, hey, this is my son, I'm really pleased with him, right? I love him. I, I, you know, I want you to listen to him. But, but why is it what happened on that mountain so important? So here's why. By Peter trying to build houses for these three guys, two things were happening. The first thing is Peter was trying to put Elijah, Moses, and Jesus on the same level. So if you notice, he's like, hey, I'm, let's make some three houses. They're all equal. He doesn't say Jesus' yours is better than the other. He, he thinks that they're all kind of equal, but they're not. Jesus is above everyone else. How do I know that? Because when the cloud disappears, who is the only one left? Jesus. Because in the end, all that matters is Jesus. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus will always be greater than Elijah. So that's the first thing that we see. But the second thing that this happens in this moment with God speaking and Jesus remaining was, was what God was saying was basically like, hey, the mission that Jesus had for you, Peter, everybody, doesn't terminate on the mountain. You haven't arrived. The mission that he had for us was not on the mountain, but it was in the valley. It was with the Jews and the Gentiles, the rich, the poor, the outcast, the famous, Remember what Jesus had said earlier in Romans chapter, Mark chapter 8. He says earlier, he says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So God is calling us to the mountains, right, to know who Jesus is, to connect with him. But he's calling us to the valley to share that love with others about Jesus to the world. And guys, that will cost us a great deal. But it is the true call of a disciple of Jesus. Someone that is willing to, that values their soul over their popularity. Who, who sees the outcast and loves them instead of ignoring them. Someone that is willing to give up this life for the eternal life that is later. And in the middle of that, we have to remember who was in that moment when they're learning all this. We have to remember that Peter, James, and John, they were fishermen before they met Jesus. So they weren't privileged, they weren't, you know, driving Mercedes, they weren't perfect, no, no, no. They were scruffy, grimy, smelled like fish gut dudes, okay? Except there they were. Three guys that looked like dirty coal miners getting off of work, coming to some fancy black tie cocktail party with royalty. That's what these guys look like up on this mountain. But yet Jesus brings them up and shows them what no man has ever other seen, that they got to see the glory of Jesus, and the reason this is so powerful for us to understand is that that's what Jesus wants for us all, for us to see him for who he really is, as the king of the universe, as the lover of your soul, that regardless of where you came from, he wants us to know him, that regardless of how much sin is in your life, he wants you to see him as God. Regardless of how much pain was in your life or pain you caused in this life, he wants you to see him as the healer for it all. And that, guys, we can all experience the same type of transfiguration, transformation, metamorpho through Jesus too. 
I want you to listen carefully to what Paul says in two, two important passages. Romans chapter 12, Paul would say, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will, uh, uh, approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then look over in 2 Corinthians where Paul would tell us this, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Jesus is showing his glory to very ordinary men, not so that they would stay on the mountain with him, but so they would take it to the valley, to the world. And that only happens when our faith grows from within us and we stay very connected to Jesus. Because guys, our faith is not built for mountains, but to bring into the valleys. That's what our faith is built for. It's for the valleys. So, so, so if this is true, guys, if this is true, then this time with Jesus that they're having on the mountain was to prepare them for what was to come below. And so as Jesus, Peter, James, and John, as they start to make their way down the mountain, very quickly they realize that this was true. Look in verse 14 with me back in chapter 9. It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought, my, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So, so no sooner had Jesus like come off the mountain that he has to dive into yet another argument between his disciples and the religious leaders. But this time, this argument is very tangled. Apparently, this man, he came to the disciples with his possessed son to have him, them help him. Now, we've already established in chapter 6 that Jesus has given the disciples the power to cast out demons and that they can do it. In fact, it's said that they were able to cast out many demons in chapter 6. So it's no wonder that word had started to spread that, hey, these disciples can cast out demons. And so people started to, to bring their, their loved ones to them. However, it says that they were unable to do it. Now, a little later in the chapter, you're going to find out it's because their prayer life stunk and they were trying to do things more out of their, their, their works instead of faith in God. So that's a fun little read for you later this week. You can read the rest of that and take a look at what I was mentioning. But, but in this moment, regardless what, it, what happened here, um, because the disciples couldn't get rid of this demon, three, really a threefold problem became, arrived. The first was this poor boy was still possessed by a demon. The second thing is, is now the disciples are probably arguing amongst themselves. How come you can't heal him? What can't you kill him? Your prayer life stinks. Oh, yeah, well, I didn't read Leviticus either, right? You know, there's all this stuff happening. And then the religious leaders are watching this whole thing take place. And they're like, just another reason why you don't have to follow these guys or this Jesus guy. They can't even get their stuff figured out. So, so with this whole playing out, Jesus has to be thinking, I leave these nine guys alone for just a couple days up on the mountain to be able to get away, and they screw the whole thing up, you know? Like, what is the deal? Which, if you keep that in mind, it makes sense why Jesus would say this next in verse 19. He says, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
Now, last week we heard that Jesus often, he sighed deeply at his disciples. Now he's like the IT guy who's trying to explain to you how to fix your computer and then eventually gets fed up and just says, move, I'll fix it, right? He's like looking at his disciples like, just move over, bring the boy, let me take care of it. Go eat the bread, like whatever. You know, just like, oh, we're done. Now, now next week we're going to unpack a little bit more about why kids are such an outcast in our society but for today, just know that a child and a demon-possessed child at that were very much outcasts, especially when you consider the context of what we just said, how the demon tortured him and he was writhing on the ground and all these things. Like, he was being attacked physically and spiritually. That's not something people generally come around. They leave those people out. But Jesus doesn't shy away from outcasts. Instead, he brings them closer. So he brings the child, the outcast, closer to him. Look at verse 20. Uh, Verse 20, we get a chance to see where it says, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It it has often thrown him into fire or water to, to kill him. So, so this demon freaks out at the sight of Jesus because he knows his time is short. So in this one final act, the demon throws this poor boy down to the ground, causes him to foam at the mouth and writhe around. But the great physician Jesus acts like a good physician too and he starts to ask the dad some questions, asks him how long this has been going and the father says it's been happening since he was a very young boy. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you not to sanitize this scene. I'm going to ask you to put yourself there. It's a father that loves his son, and he is so desperate for help that he comes to the disciple with the hope that they can cast out this demon, a demon that has tortured and tormented this boy to the point of causing him, it said, to jump into fires and jump into water so it could burn him alive or drown him. And, and who was there to pad down the flames and to drag him ashore? His dad. Who, who cares for his, his, his wounds and his burns and who, who pounded on his little back to get that that water out of his lungs, his dad. Who who would hold him at night in his arms, hoping that the demon might just let up for a moment so that he could see the true colors of the eyes of his baby boy that he used to rock to sleep at night? His dad. It was his dad that found a way to bring his boy to get help, and now he stands with Jesus and his son alone. The father crying out to the healer. And after he describes all this to Jesus, it says this in verse 22, it says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. The man tries to wipe the tears from his eyes as he sees his son writhing in pain and foaming at the mouth from the ground. 
And in, in desperation, he says, he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, right? He says, he says, take, take pity on, on us. Isn't it beautiful that he said us and not him? Because to this father, it was them. It wasn't just a him thing, it was them. They were inextricably linked together in this battle. He says, can you do anything to help us? And Jesus looks at him and says, if you can. Now, I don't want you to think of Jesus as being sarcastic or arrogant in this moment. We read that Jesus is compassionate with people. He loves people who are, who are actually hurting. He loves on them. So, so, so I think what he's just saying is that he's a gentle reminder of a greater reality that he's about to say. He says to him, everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus would say something similar, Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. He would say it this way. He'd say, he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, he says. Jesus is reminding this man and reminding all of us that through confidence, through belief, through faith in Jesus, not in man, but in Jesus, I'm just telling you all things are possible. That the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the infertile can become fertile, the addicted can become clean, the sick can become well, the lost can become found, because all things are possible. And, and that doesn't mean that God will always do these things, but it doesn't change the truth that he can do these things if it is in accordance with his will. That God can do all things, but that doesn't mean he will do the things that you or I want. He's not a genie in a bottle. We don't rub the lamp and get our wishes three. He is sovereign. He has a plan that's bigger than ours, but he is still powerful in ways that we cannot comprehend. And so what he's calling us to do is to trust him, to believe in that power in our life. Jesus says, believe. And the man says in verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me, help my unbelief. And, and right here is this another transfiguration moment happening again. His belief in Jesus came from an internal movement that culminated in an external confession of faith in Jesus. Before Jesus ever turned to help his son, this man was transformed, metamorpho, changed from a skeptic to believer. And then Jesus turns to this vile demon that's hurting his son. Look at verse 25. It says, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Jesus removed the demon. The boy is restored just like that. Maybe you didn't hear what I just read that Jesus helped this little boy. Demon gone, foaming gone, pain gone, healed. And even though it looked like he was dead, he was never more alive than in that moment. And, and did you see the first person that touched him? Beyond just his father, he was someone that was an outcast, untouchable, unclean. But in that moment, Jesus reaches down and grabs his hand and he brings the boy back to life. He brought him from outcast back to living. My friends, that is amazing. But that is Jesus. That, that's, that's Jesus. That's our Jesus. 
But did you know something? That Jesus knew something that nobody else knew. And maybe you missed it. I know I missed it a few times. Here's what Jesus knew. Getting rid of the demon was the easy part. Getting rid of the doubt was the hard part. I mean, when you read that at just the sound of Jesus' voice, demons shudder and flee, there is nothing that they can do, nothing they can say to stop his voice from evicting them from their host. But since God allows us to have free will, which means that we can decide freely, it means that we have to decide whether we want to listen to him, love him, follow him, believe him. That becomes the biggest hindrance, the biggest obstacle to having faith in him, to becoming truly free for all eternity. And maybe that's you today. I mean, maybe you're okay with Jesus and the whole healing thing, and, and he had some great speeches, but man, seeing him as your savior, that's a little difficult. Maybe you've had a really rough life. Maybe your life is really rough and you're not sure if you want to trust anybody else, including Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a home where you went to church and, and the priest told you everything that you did and that you're okay and you're, you're off. But, and, and, but believing in Jesus as God, a personal relationship, that's a little harder. It's that move from doubt to belief that Jesus knows is the hardest obstacle to overcome. But once you allow Jesus to soften that part of your heart, it's amazing what can change. It, it was the moment where he tipped toward belief that the man saw Jesus not just as the savior of his son and getting rid of the, getting rid of the demon, but actually the savior of his soul. His eternity was completely different. And, and guys, Jesus wants to do that very same thing for you no matter who you are or what you've done. And so in this fresh perspective of Jesus from the outcast, we learn that Jesus comes near to the outcast to show them how close they are to his love. Jesus is constantly doing this with outcasts, especially children. This man's son was, was not any special than any other children. He's done this other times. Look at verse 36. It says, he, Jesus, took a, ch a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome, whoever welcomes me does not welcome, whoever does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He goes on verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So each and every time you see Jesus interacting with an outcast, he doesn't do it from a distance, he always does it up close. He brings the little boy that's possessed and his father up close to him before the crowd came. He wanted the little children to come to him, not to stay away. He protected the little children, the outcasts, from anyone that would keep them from believing in him. So guys, Jesus comes, right? Jesus comes near to the outcasts to show them how close they are to his love. Jesus wants our doubt to become belief. He doesn't care who it is. He doesn't care what they've done. He doesn't care where they've been. He just wants them to come to him. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus, my friends, is knocking. And only you or I can open that door. 
He wants us to welcome him in. He wants us to believe in him. And he knows in order for that to happen, he needs to have close proximity to us to show us what his love really is about. So we can be transfigured, transformed, metamorpho from the inside out for full belief in him. Jesus comes near to the outcast to show them how close they are to his love. And so this week, as you reread chapter nine on your own, I would ask that you would thank God for bringing outsiders close because at one point we were all outsiders. But something practical you can do is, would you just reach out to somebody that's hurting? Just encourage them. Maybe a text message, buy them lunch, buy them coffee, but don't, don't wait, just reach out to them. Encourage that person that feels like they're on the outside. Just encourage them. And as we turn our attention just towards communion, thinking about Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross in our place, the story just came to mind. It's that in the middle of the 20th century, there was this Austrian professor. His name was Professor Theodore Erlman. He worked at the University of Innsbruck. And he devised this, this experiment where he was able to turn a person's eyesight upside down. So, so the professor made his assistant, who was Evo Kohler, made him wear these, these hand-engineered goggles. And, and these goggles, they, were special, they had specially arranged mirrors on them that would, once the light entered your eye, it flipped it. And so the bottom became the top, and the top became the bottom. And so at first, Kohler was kind of like stumbling around, as you can only imagine, when things are a little disoriented, hard to walk stairs or get into a chair or anything like that. I mean, imagine pouring a cup of coffee, but instead of the liquid going down, it goes up because the coffee cup is up here. I mean, it was crazy stuff that he was going through. But what was cool was after a very short time, Kohler was able to completely adjust to this new way of seeing the world. Completely adjust. In fact, in some of the experiments, you could see people that are actually able to ride motorcycles with the goggles on, but you just think that everything was upside down as you're doing it. Even though wearing these goggles made their vision flip completely upside down, they were able to adjust and they were able to live. So, so sometimes I think that we feel this is what it's like when we follow Jesus. That if we start to follow him, that our world is going to be completely turned upside down. Because we couldn't imagine what it would be like to have Jesus love us that way. We can't even comprehend being generous and serving others and thinking about others first. To us, it seems so upside down to make church a priority where we come each and every week and we read our Bible and we pray and we think it is absolutely crazy to think about being in a growth group or doing life with other people. Like, we just think it's absurd. But, but I'm here today to tell you this, that here's what you actually find out when you start to follow Jesus. What you'll find out is that what you used to think was normal is actually what's upside down. That, that when you're not following Jesus, you have those glasses on. But when you are following Jesus, your life actually is how God wanted it to be all along. Jesus wants everyone, outcasts included, to see clearly who Jesus really is. And to do that, we have to allow him to take off the glasses of sin and shame and guilt and pride and arrogance and all kinds of other things that this world says that we should have. And instead, we need to start to see Jesus for who he, how he was meant to be through the lenses of grace and forgiveness and love. Jesus wants us to follow him fully with our entire life. And he knows he needs to be in close proximity for that to happen.
And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we will take the glasses off, that we will follow him fully. We'll see how our life was meant to actually be as we keep our eyes fixed on him, as he brings the outcast close and loves us. Heavenly Father, I just lift up right now. I come before you just with a humble heart. As a pastor that has um, needed this message as much as anybody else, Father, I'm grateful that you've instilled in all of us and in me the potential to know that you, you love us, that despite what we may have gone through, that you, you're there for us. Despite if we feel like an outcast, you bring us close. I just am grateful for that. But God, the only reason that that's possible is because of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, you took on, well, before even then, Father, you, you sent your son from heaven to earth to come to us. You allowed your son to live amongst us. You, you Jesus, lived a perfect life and then you died for us. You, you then took on, you went in the tomb and, and lived the death and, and, and went through a death that was meant for us. You then defeated death for us and then you ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. You've done all of this for us because you want us to be near to you. And so God, I pray that we would do that, that as we worship you, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Jesus, to remember you, that spirit, you would move and that we would draw near to you no matter where we're at. And so God, I pray this right now that you would move in this place, both online and in person, and that your spirit would move and draw people to you, Jesus. We do all of this for you. We give this to you because you're worthy of our praise. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.